Jesus is about to begin teaching in parables. And one of the, the, the parable he starts off with is the parable of the sower. And it's pretty complicated and complex, so we gotta go uh, to a lot of places in order to make sense of it. Now, just to catch us up briefly where Jesus has been and the Gospel of Matthew has been, there has been an ongoing continual development and theme based around who's in and who's out. Because Jesus shows up on the scene and everyone who you thought would be like on the in crowd and right with God is turning out to be opposed to the will of God. And those who you thought were a part of the out crowd, like the sinner, the tax collector, Jesus is offering them grace and forgiveness and they're receiving it. So it's this theme that's going on of like, who's actually in? Who's actually truly repentant? Who's expressing real faith? What's going on here? And in that theme, Jesus begins to teach in parables. Matthew 13, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach and he told them same things in parables. Okay, couple, couple introductory notes here. Um, Jesus is, he's gone and he sat down in a boat. The reason why this is important is this is the posture and position of authoritative teaching. In Jesus' day, first century Israel, if someone's going to teach and there would be a crowd, the crowd would most likely stand and the teacher would sit. We do the opposite. Like, you all get to sit, I have to stand. But in Jesus' day, it was reversed. So he goes in the boat and Matthew says, he sits. He's taking the posture of an authoritative teacher. Now, what's fascinating about this is it's also done for a strategic reason is that you, drive, you go out in a little bit of the waters in the Sea of Galilee and you sit in a boat. And if you're in the right place where the incline of the land is just right, there's a natural sort of acoustic system that goes on. So Jesus could project loudly, but then it would be amplified by the natural acoustics and you get his words being spread to a huge, huge crowd. Now thirdly, it says that he's beginning to speak in parables. How we define parable is kind of difficult. Some people say parables are uh, stories of comparison. Some people say they're analogies, they're metaphors, they're allegories. Um, and there's a sense of truth in all of that, but they're, they're sort of mysterious in what they're doing. And so for me, what's been the most helpful definition of parable is actually what that literal word, word means. Because in Greek, it's parabole, and it's formed of two root words, para and then balo. Paro means alongside of, besides, or sometimes above, but essentially with something alongside of something. And then balo means to throw or to cast. And so ekbalo, for example, in the Gospels, ekbalo is to cast something out with force. So Jesus ekbalos demons. But balo is a little less forceful. It means to throw or to cast. So a parable is to cast something alongside of something else, to throw something beside something. Essentially... Jesus tells stories that run alongside of other truths. And in throwing something alongside of it, in telling a story alongside of the other truths, he is going to highlight the truths trying to be communicated, but do it by the story running alongside of it. So in the parables, there are great truths being communicated, but they're being communicated alongside of something else. So they're not explicit, they're implicit, and you have to dig deep into it to discover it. Here's the first and probably one of the most well-known parables of Jesus. A sower went out to sow, and he sowed. 
And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they were withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus speaks of a farmer, someone who's sowing seed. He's broadcasting speed. We use the word broadcast to refer to, uh, like in television, you broadcast uh, a show or a program, but it's originally a farming term. When you broadcast something, you are casting broadly. And so farmers would go out with seeds and they'd cast broadly. And the seeds fall down everywhere. And Jesus gives us four specific areas where the seeds fall, and I've underlined the four. Some seeds fall along the path. Birds come and devour them. Other seeds, they fall on rocky ground where they don't have much soil, and immediately they, they spring up, but since they have no depth of soil, the sun comes out and scorches them. The third, some seeds fall among thorns, and they grow up and they get choked out. And then the last set of seeds, they fall on good soil, they produce grain, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. So four different categories, right? The first category is uh, seeds that fall on already dry and compacted ground. You ever driving past, driving past agricultural land and you see a bunch of crops growing and in between each row, there's like a mound where no crops are growing and that's where you could walk? It's the same principle except in the ancient world that probably would have been about three feet. So in between the rows of crops, there's a road to walk on. And people actually travel those quite frequently. So if you're familiar with the Gospels, there's a part where Jesus and his disciples are walking through the fields because there was a road there that you could walk down. That was its point. But it's compacted. No seed's gonna get to any soil there. And then there's rocky ground where there's a little bit of soil, enough to see a seed begin to sprout, but the sun comes out and destroys it. And then there's areas where there's enough soil and it appears as if a plant is gonna grow, but then the weeds, the thorns, it chokes it out because they're fighting for sunlight and nutrients. And the last category is great. Falls on good soil and it produces up to a hundredfold. Now, some of, if you grew up in church or you've read the gospels, you sort of know about this parable, you've read it, so you don't stop and kind of ask what everyone else would have asked then. Most people would go, okay, so what are you actually talking about, Jesus? There's a farmer, he's throwing seed, and some fall on bad ground, some, like, what's the point? And that's actually what the disciples do. The next scene is this, the disciples come to him and say, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Follow this, this is This is intense. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. That's weird. Like if you're reading that, it's like the seeds are gonna go out, and for some who already understand, they'll get it more, and for others who don't understand, they're gonna get it even less. This is why one of the most misleading things about 
the parables is when people say Jesus spoke in parables so he could use everyday images so that everyone could understand. Like it explicitly says Jesus teaches in parables so that some people will get it and others won't. Like that's explicitly said. Now how does that work? Because it's kind of confusing because essentially um, the seeds that are being thrown out, it's the same truth. It's the same truth that comes down. It's the same gospel truth but then there's a different reaction based upon the soil it lands in. For some, nothing. For others, fruit. This is um, potassium as a metal. Uh, Do you guys know what happens when you put potassium in water, H2O? It ignites, it ignites. Okay, this is um, sodium, alkali metal. It's a metal form. What happens when you put it in water? It's a ke- We're covering history, chemistry. We did math and budgeting. <laughs> Man, this is this is a, the whole educational spectrum. Here's here's sodium chloride, NaCl. You put it in water. What happens? Nothing. It'll dissolve. So follow this. It's the same H2O, it's the same water, but what it comes into contact with produces a different outcome, a different reaction. God's truth is similar to this in that God's truth is the same, it's unchanging, it, 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 it doesn't morph itself, but depending upon who it goes to, it produces a different reaction. And what Jesus is saying is that for some, you'll see genuine faith and repentance and enlightenment, and you'll see growth. But for others, God's truth hits their heart and their hard heart becomes more hardened. So the parables speak in such a way that for some people it activates faith and repentance and others it hardens their heart and it makes them more confused. But it's not as if the intent of God is to confuse the person. It's that that same truth, that H2O, when it hits different types of soil has a different reaction. And you probably on a basic level, have seen that happen in your life. Like a Bible verse is spoken and some person is like, thank you, Lord, and someone else has a problem with it. But that, that's what's going on. Now, if that's hard to understand, um, I guess we'll cover, we've covered the, the core classes in high school. We'll do an elective cooking. Um, <laughs> if the chemistry was difficult to understand, think of it like this. If you have some friends over for dinner and you're like, you know, my food, a little bland, I, 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 it needs a little bit more s- salty kick. So I'm gonna put a little tapatio on it because tapatio just makes everything better anyway. You can put that on ice cream and it tastes better. Um, <laughs> put a little tapatio on it and some people will be like, oh, this is great, this is fantastic. Tell me the recipe. Other people, some of you, someone snuck in some tapatio on your food, you eat it and you're like, you begin to have the internal conflict, you're panicking, you're sweating, your nose is red, and you don't want to be that person that says, hey, man, you got any milk or bread, man? This is really, so you know what I mean. So it's the same hot sauce, but it creates a different reaction depending upon the person. It's the same seeds that are going out. God's truth is going out, but it's going to produce different reaction depending upon the recipients. Jesus continues this same line of thinking and thought, but now he's gonna quote the prophet Isaiah to prove it. 
He says, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. That says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should with their eyes and hear, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. So you see, he says, the word's going out, but they're not going to get it. Their eyes see it, but they're not going to perceive it. Their ears, yes, they can hear an audible sound, but they're not gonna understand it. And so this same message is being received differently from different people. And in order to illustrate this, Jesus quotes from the prophet Isaiah, specifically Isaiah chapter six. In Isaiah chapter six, the prophet Isaiah is given a vision of the heavenly throne room of the king of glory. And in it, there's a call and a commissioning of the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah, just like Jesus, is going to have a message and he's gonna proclaim it to the people. But God warns him that you're gonna preach this message, but no one's gonna receive it. No one's gonna receive it. It's like seeds that fall on bad soil. No one's gonna believe and repent. Okay. One of the most important things you can learn about the Bible, not just for today, but for your Bible reading forever, is when the New Testament or the Bible, anywhere for that matter, quotes other verses in the Bible. They are not merely quoting the two verses that they're quoting. I mean, yes, they're quoting those two verses, but what they are trying to do is take you back to that event because there's a whole world of information and story and narrative that surrounds the two verses being quoted. And you as a reader are not just meant to see the two verses that are being quoted, in this case, Isaiah. You're meant to picture that whole event and the surrounding narrative. So for example, if I were to say, it was a real four score and seven years ago event. I am not just talking about a time, right? I am drawing you back to a speech a speech given by a person, Abraham Lincoln, the Gettysburg Address, and there's events surrounding that, around the speech, there's a civil war and all kinds of things taking place. So in one line, I'm not just trying to get you to think of five or six words, I'm trying to bring you back to a whole narrative. And so in order to understand what Jesus is doing, we need to go back to Isaiah six because Jesus has that whole section in mind when he quotes a couple verses from Isaiah six. So let's go there. This is hundreds of years before the life of Jesus in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter six, it says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of glory. It's interesting. He's in the, the temple scene, the heavenly temple, but the, the, it says the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. So Isaiah is brought forth and he gets this insight into the king and his throne room. He sees God in his glory. And it also says that there's seraphim there. 
Now, this is fascinating because seraphim, that, that's the plural for a Hebrew word, seraph, seraph. And seraph, being used of a spiritual or supernatural being, is, only takes place here in the book of Isaiah. Other times it's translated and it's used to, to talk about like a serpent-like figure or, or a snake. But here, all of a sudden, there's these spiritual beings in the throne room of God that are described as seraphs. Now, the Hebrew word seraph, in its root, like its, its basic meaning, it means a burning or fiery one. And so what you need to understand is that Isaiah has seen the throne room of God and there are spiritual beings who are fiery ones. They are the burning ones. And these burning ones, these fiery ones, are worshiping God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the foundations of the threshold shook and the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of, un, uh, of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah goes, I'm a sinful man and I live among sinful people. Now I am in the throne room of God. I am, I am there with his holy presence and that means I'm done. I'm toast, I'm dead, it's over for me. I am a wicked man with unclean lips from an unclean people brought in. It was nice, I had a good run. I'm dead. He says, woe is me for I am lost. Hebrew word here for lost is dahma. It means to be utterly destroyed. Isaiah saying, I am going to come apart like the very fabric of my being. I have no hope as a sinner in the presence of the holy God. goes on. Then one of the seraphim, one of the burning ones, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So this supernatural being, the burning fiery one, takes a burning coal and he brings it over to Isaiah's face. Now you can imagine what Isaiah's thinking. Yep, for sure dead. For sure dead now. And he's bringing this fire over to Isaiah's face, and what happens? The fire is not destructive, it's a purgative fire. It's a cleansing fire. It brings healing and restoration. Ultimately, the burning one says, your sin is atoned for. It has the opposite effect. It's not a destructive fire, it's a purgative fire. Your sin is atoned for. And then I heard a loud, the, the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Very popular scripture. God says, who's gonna take my word to the people? Isaiah's like, I've been forgiven, I'm atoned for, I'm your guy, send me. And God says, Go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Now, does that sound familiar? This is what Jesus was quoting. Jesus was quoting, you see, but you don't perceive. You hear, but you don't understand. Jesus was quoting this, and he quotes this section. Make the heart of the people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. The, the message of truth 
is going to be spoken by the prophet Isaiah, but people won't believe it. They'll resist it and rebel, and in doing so, their hearts will become all the more hard. It's a fantastic ministry proposal for this guy Isaiah. It's like, man, who signs up to be that guy? And then listen, look, at, look at Isaiah's response. How long, O Lord? Meaning, so I'm going to go preach and no one's going to believe. No one's going to repent. How long do I have to keep doing that, God? Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. In other words, you're going to preach, no one's going to believe, and you know how long you're going to do that? Until there's absolute desolation in the land. It's going to be utter destruction and judgment. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Strange, right? This is strange, like what's going on? It's just more images of judgment. How long? Till no one believes. And then he gives us an image. He says, it'll be like a tree that is chopped down and then it's burned. So there's a chopped down, burned up tree stump. That's the only thing that will be left. And this is a powerful image. This is what Isaiah gives us. How long will Isaiah preach and no one receive the message until everything's destroyed and the only thing that's left is a chopped down, burned up tree stump? It's tough ministry. I'd like to see his budget presentation. <laughs> now, a couple chapters later, this image is repeated in the book of Isaiah, but it gives a little but tiny glimmer of hope. Listen to what it says. A few chapters later in Isaiah 11, it says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So it's this really cryptic message that says, oh yeah, that chopped down, burned up stump, there's gonna be like a shoot that comes from it and it's, it, that'll bear some fruit. But that's all you get. So Jesus quotes from this very important climactic scene in the book of Isaiah where he's brought into the throne room. He sees the heavenly king. He, king. he gets his call and commission to preach. But in it, God tells Isaiah, no one's gonna receive your message. In fact, it's gonna harden hearts until everything lies in desolation. That's what Jesus quotes to his disciples as he's breaking down the parable of the sower. Now keep all of that in mind as we move forward. For truly I say to you, and this is, we're back in Matthew now, and Jesus is now going on with his disciples. He says, truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear. Jesus says, there's been people all throughout history, prophets and righteous people who have longed to see what you're getting to see. So make no mistake about it. This is incredibly important. And now Jesus will give his interpretation of the parable of the sower. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in their heart. That is what was sown along the path. And for that was sown on rocky ground. 
This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So think like the potassium and the sodium. The word goes out, which is the word of the kingdom. It's the gospel. It's the teaching of Jesus. And for some, it lands on compacted dry ground. There's no soil. So it dies immediately. Birds come, snatch it up. For others, it falls in some, a little bit of soil so it can sprout, but then the sun comes out and it destroys it. Then the two other types of soil. And for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understand it, understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. So you get these four types of soil that represent different types of people receiving the message of Jesus. There's some, they're like the road that's been walked on, dry and compacted. They don't even receive the word. Others, there's at first an apparent reception and you get a little bit of growth. Rocky soil, some comes out, destroys the planet, withers. For others, there is maybe more potential for growth, like it's growing. But then the love of riches and the deceitfulness of the world choke that plant out and it dies. And then for others, finally, it falls on good soil and it produces 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Now, at this point, something usually happens when people read the parable of the sower. We immediately want to try and figure out, well, what am I in this? What soil am I, and what can I do not to be bad soil? Right? Like some of you might have already went there. You're going, oh man, I'm probably that soil who, I'm growing, but man, my love of riches and the deceitfulness of the world, it better choke me out. So what can I do to cultivate myself to be better soil? And so the bent is to immediately, as an individual, filter it through an individualist lens and say, where am I in this story and what can I do to be better? And so we go, man, I got to cultivate, I got to cultivate, I got to become better soil. That's not how the parable works. Like the bad soil can't cultivate itself and fertilize itself and till itself to become better soil. So what happens is we go straight to the individualist lens and skip over the fact that Jesus is not, there's certainly a time and place for you to wrestle with. Hey, um, am I growing in my discipleship? Am I being choked out by the, by the world, by the love of money? Those are great questions and we should be wrestling with those, but that's not the point of the parable. The point of, the point of this parable is not to find out which soil you are and become better soil. In this parable, in the parable of the sower, Jesus is describing the nature of reality. Jesus is describing the nature of reality in that when God's truth comes down, it's like seed that is broadcasted. His truth comes down to human beings. And when people receive God's truth, it will be received and there will be different reactions depending upon the person and the heart of the individual. For some, they're not even gonna get anything. They're gonna reject it right away. Others, there might be a little bit of growth. Some, there might be a little bit more growth. But ultimately, these fall away. 
But here's the thing Jesus is saying. He's saying there is a good soil and it does produce. And this is the most important lesson of the parable and so often neglected. Jesus is describing the nature of reality. God's truth is broadcasted. It's out there. And yes, people will reject it. People will will rebel against it. People will even hate it. But what is Jesus saying at the end of this parable? He is saying that the harvest is certain and sure. And even though there will be rejection and rebellion, there will be fruit. The seeds will land in good soil and they will produce 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. The gospel will go out and it will be rejected. And some will maybe begin to accept it and they'll end up falling away. But make no mistake about it. The harvest and the fruit is certain and sure. Now, why is this so important for his disciples to hear? Because this is what is literally actually taking place in the life and ministry of Jesus. This is describing the nature of reality. This is the way it always is. Jesus is preaching and guess what? There are people who are like the compacted dry road. They don't even... They don't even take enough time to even like consider it. It doesn't even germinate. And so there are Pharisees who are like the hard, the hard road. Complete, complete rejection. And then there's people who kind of begin to receive the word. This is the masses who are following Jesus. Jesus is gathering great crowds. But most of them don't end up becoming followers and disciples of Jesus. They hear the teaching, they like it, and then they go home. Maybe when Jesus said, if you want to be my follower, you have to take up a cross and follow me. And they're like, nah. Little bit of growth, little bit of interest, but ultimately they fall away. And then there's people who maybe even received a healing of Jesus, like they saw something miraculous done to someone else or maybe even themselves. But at the end of the day, they still end up falling away. And the disciples are going to see this and they're going to be a part of it. In the life of Jesus, you will see the Pharisees and the religious elite reject Jesus. You will see the crowds that were first interested all reject Jesus. You will see even people who experienced miracles fall away and reject Jesus. And you'll see even the disciples at one point run when the shepherd is struck. But what Jesus is saying is make no mistake about it. The word of God will not fail. The sower sows seed and there will be a harvest. It is certain and sure. The gospel will take root and it will bear fruit up to a hundredfold. Now you today are living, walking, breathing examples of this because the gospel did begin to go out 2,000 years ago and at first it seemed like this seed fell and this seed failed and this seed failed. But slowly but surely, the gospel began to take root in good soil. And you saw exponential growth, hundredfold growth. And now today, there are hundreds of millions of people who are followers of Jesus because the harvest is certain and sure. That was incredibly important for the disciples to hear. It's incredibly important for us to hear. You just be faithful. You be faithful. You broadcast. You tell the world of Jesus. You tell your friends and family of Jesus what he's done for you, what he's doing in your life. And yeah, some some people aren't gonna hear it. Some people reject it. Some people might come along for the ride for a little bit and then they follow, it's okay. You're not responsible for the result. Just so. And we see that taking place in the life of Jesus. Now, okay. How can Jesus be so certain 
that there will be a harvest that will have hundredfold fruit. Like, how can he be so certain of that? Okay. Remember the image Jesus brought us to. Isaiah is experiencing very similar things to Jesus. The people aren't hearing it. In Isaiah's day, the promise was not a hundredfold fruit. It was what? The only thing you're going to end up with is a burned up, chopped down stump. That's it. But remember, we hinted earlier, there's a burned up, chopped down stump, but in Isaiah 11, a little glimmer of hope, just a little. Isaiah 11 says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. So this chopped up, burned down tree stump, at some point is gonna have a shoot that's gonna bear fruit. And the tree stump is called the stump of Jesse. Jesse is the father of King David in the Old Testament. So when we're talking about this burned up, chopped down tree stump, we're talking about the line of David. So something or someone from the line of David is going to be a shoot and the shoot will bear fruit. Now if you were here when we started the Gospel of Matthew, what was Matthew's number one point in chapter one? He gives a genealogy if you remember. What was the point? Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the son of David. Now Isaiah goes on in verse two and actually tells us that this shoot is actually a person. The shoot from the stump of Jesse that will bear fruit is a person. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So how can Jesus be so sure that there will be a harvest a hundredfold? Because he himself is the shoot of the stump of Jesse. He is the one who in due time, according to the sovereign plans of God, will come and be the righteous branch that bears good fruit. And so Isaiah, it's a very doom and gloom book. Everything's gonna be burned away. There's gonna be a burned up, chopped down tree. But still the hope. A son of David will come. And he will be the one that bears fruit for the people of God. Okay, now this work gets even crazier. You know, sometimes, as you notice, every so often we'll just say something like, do you guys know how awesome the Bible is? Okay, this is one of those moments. This is how awesome the Bible is. How is Jesus so sure he'll bear fruit? And that his ministry will bear fruit? Well, because he's confident that he is the Messiah the shoot from the stump of Jesse. Well, how is he so confident of that? Like, how does he know all that? And it's because he's not just a man who was born 2,000 years ago. He's much more than that. In the Gospel of John, which is a biography, much like Matthew, of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, in John, Jesus is out there teaching, proclaiming the Gospel, doing miracles, and he's met with the same response that he's met in the biography of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. People aren't listening, they're not responding. They're rejecting the message of Jesus. They're rejecting the miracles and the signs. John records this rejection and likewise gives a response to the rejection. And take a guess, you might as well guess what book he quotes. Okay. It says this. This is Jesus. John says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word, 
spoken by the prophet of Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? John says, hey, this is a different book. It's not John, not Matthew, but guess what? In my account, they're still rejecting Jesus. And it's to fulfill what was taking place in the book of Isaiah. And he goes on and quotes more from the prophet Isaiah. Therefore, they could not believe, for again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their lips and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Same theme, same verses, same quote. The message comes down, and for some, it actually hardens their heart. They reject it all the more. And for some, it turns to repentance. Okay. Now, why does John record this? He wants to prove a point. He said, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Okay, go back to Isaiah 6, which John is now quoting. Who did Isaiah see? Who's the, he saw his glory? Who did Isaiah see in that throne room vision? He saw God, right? Remember? There's the Lord seated. He is highly exalted. He is high and lifted up. And his, the train of his, his robe, it fills the, the glory, is, the, the room is being filled with the glory of the Lord. Isaiah saw God. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Okay, follow this. First line, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who's the him? God. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. Who's the him? What is John trying to get us to see? Trying to get you to see, me to see. Isaiah saw the glory of God. And who is the very person of the glory of God? John says, that's Jesus. John said, Isaiah saw him. So how can Jesus be so sure that the, the, there's gonna be a harvest a hundredfold? Well, because he's sure that he's the stump. He's sure that he's the shoot from the stump of Jesse. And how's he so sure of that? Because he's not just a man who randomly came to the conclusion that he's the Messiah. Jesus is not only the king of earth, he's the king of heaven. He is enthroned between the seraphim. He is the expressed glory of God. And what you see in the book of Isaiah is God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, planning sovereignly before all eternity that in the fullness of time, God the Father would send the Son and the Spirit of God would be upon the Son and the Son would proclaim the gospel, the message of the kingdom, and because God is sovereign, this message will bear fruit. The harvest is sure and certain. God is sovereign. He broadcast his truth, and although some people reject and rebel and have their hearts hardened, the sovereign Lord is saying, when the gospel is preached, there will be fruit. There will be fruit. And again today, you are living, walking, breathing evidence of that. 
because there was a Jewish man in the first century who was betrayed by everyone and crucified under Pontius Pilate under the authority of the Roman Empire. And that man and his message has changed the world. It's been a hundredfold. And from a historical perspective, no one can argue with that. Do you understand this? Like the message of a crucified Jewish man in the first century has spread to hundreds of millions of people. And today on Sunday morning, you join hundreds of millions of people in adoration and worship of our crucified king. Because he's not just the king of earth, he's the king of heaven. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And in Isaiah, you saw the son of God lifted up and exalted. And in the ministry of Jesus, how do they describe the crucifixion? Jesus is lifted up, not in a throne, but upon a cross. And when the Son of God is crucified, you are seeing the enthronement of the earth's true king, the rightful ruler. And in him dying, he goes into death to defeat death on our behalf so that we might have life. He leaves heaven to come to earth to die in order that he may take rebellious children like you and my, me up to heaven with him. This is the glory and beauty of the gospel. The harvest is sure and certain. Now what does that mean for you today? It means the same thing it meant 2,000 years ago. The parable of the sower is a description of reality. When the gospel goes out, guess what? Not everyone's gonna believe. Some will reject it. Some people you're working with, there's a little bit of growth. Maybe this person's gonna become a Christian. They fall away. Some people, man, it seems like there's a lot going on and then ultimately the, the, the love of the world, the love of riches chokes them out, they leave. But you be certain of this. You be certain of this. God's word, his truth, his seed will not fail or falter. There will be fruit a hundredfold. He is sovereign, he is king, he is the shoot from the stump of Jesse. And so your job is to be faithful. Broadcast the seed to your friends, your family, your loved ones, your coworkers, whoever it may be. It ain't gonna land sometimes. Sometimes it'll be rejected. But sometimes it'll take you're not in control of the results. You're just called to be faithful. You trust him with the rest. Let's stand as we take communion. Jesus is the son of God, the glory of God. And before time began, the sovereign God, Father, Son, and Spirit saw fit that the Son would be sent by the Father and that the Son would die on behalf of sinners like you and me. He goes down to bring us up. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he says, this is my body, broken for you. Take and remember. So we remember today that the King of glory in Isaiah 6, came down and died the sinner's death. We remember, we rejoice, and we worship the Son of the living God. Jesus takes the cup. It's the blood of the new covenant. His blood poured out on our behalf. And 
When we take this, we say that we are pledging our allegiance to faithfully proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns. Incredibly important for us today. When you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will not fail. It will not falter. Some may reject. Some may rebel. You trust God with the results. You focus on your faithfulness. But make no mistake about it, even if you don't see it, God's working. And when you're planting these seeds, the sovereign God is moving. And we're all here if you are a follower of Jesus because of that. Whether it was our parents who brought us up as Christians or someone else who preached the gospel to us. Someone else proclaimed the message and God gave us grace so we may know him and be a part of his family. So Lord, help us to be faithful to proclaim your life, death, and resurrection until you return. And now, Father, we close with with a song of worship. May we lift your son high. He is the King of kings, Lord of lords, King of heaven, King of earth, King of all things. He has been given the name above every name. And we confess that every tongue will ultimately confess and every knee will ultimately bow, but we do so willingly with love and adoration today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.